Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Flop Culture, a podcast all about flops. I'm your host, Fanula. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. Happy Christmas. Happy Holidays. It's simply far too much time has passed since any of those events. But here we are. I have to do it. I hope you had a lovely break. I hope you're ready for a new year. I hope you're ready for new flops because I've got them coming out of my pockets. They're here. But before we get into this week's one... Let's get into the week that was, shall we? I know we're probably sick of talking about the Golden Globes, but I am going to continue to talk about the Golden Globes. But maybe not so much in the award sense, though I will say very interesting to see how much Barbie was shot out. It was Oppenheimer, wall-to-wall, poor things as well, getting a look in, which I have not seen yet, but I know uh, my good friend Owen Keane has, and he's going to talk about that very soon, I think. Hopefully I'll get to see it maybe this week or next week. Emma Stone's supposed to be brilliant in it. But yeah, they were kind of mainly cleaning up Barbie, getting the fake, not really fake, but the new award around box office achievement. So kind of surprising. Not sure what it indicates for the Oscars. I think it's a given that Oppenheimer is going to pick up specific gongs at the Oscars. I'd be very surprised if Killian Murphy doesn't get it at this point. But we'll see. I'm obviously biased. Yop Cork. Yop Douglas. You know what I mean? What a beautiful man. I'm obsessed with him. Great speech as well, the Golden Globes, I will say. Um, Yeah, not really going to focus so much on the awards. Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez. A woman I meant to talk about actually before we broke for Christmas because she was going through her thing with hard launching her new relationship with Benny Blanco. Prolific music producer, if you're not familiar with him. He's produced like, if you can think of a significant pop song, he's probably produced it. He's worked on it. He's worked on music with Selena before. They are now going out. She kind of hard launched him in this bizarre 
she was being like really online and really tongue-in-cheek and funny in a way that she kind of isn't usually, to be honest. Selena Gomez is usually very earnest and very sensitive and had previously come offline because I think there were issues around her beauty company, Rare Beauty. She had come out and said there were a certain amount of profits or certain amount of money was going to be donated to aid the crisis in the Middle East, but not specifically, like it was kind of engaging with both sides in a way that her fan base kind of rightly called out and were kind of flagging that it she wasn't maybe speaking out in a way that she should with regards to Gaza and stuff like that. And Selena Gomez famously cannot hack that. She cannot be online, as we'll prove now as we go on to the rest of the story. She went offline for a while and then came back on and just started saying slightly random things and then was like I'm going out with Benny Blanco and everyone was like haha lol and she was like no I am and everyone was like okay and then everyone was kind of mean about Benny Blanco which I'm not getting into that discussion whatever I think he's strange but not I don't even actually mean that in an aesthetic way I, I'm very curious about his character and what's going on I find his beef with Charlie Puth sincerely fascinating I think that might be related to Selena to be honest I digress we're not here to talk really about Benny Blanco or Charlie Puth. Though I will, if anyone wants to engage in a long conversation with Charlie Puth, it's uh, at flockculture underscore pod on Instagram and TikTok. Anyway, Selena Gomez, she was at the Golden Globes. Who was she with? Of course, BFF, Taylor Swift, uh, Kelly Teller, wife of Miles Teller. They were all there. You know, they're having a gab at a table. Selena comes over. Selena has some hot goss to share. Taylor's a gog. Uh, Kelly or Kaylee is a gog as well. Obviously, the cameras pick this up because the cameras are permanently on. Taylor Swift. I, that's just the way it is, right? I'm not saying that as a value judgment or anything like that. The camera's apparently on Taylor Swift. Cameras pick this up, pick this exchange up. And we have this new thing in popular culture and especially on social media where people are like, where are the lip readers? Where are the lip readers? As if like, I don't know, lip readers are cleaning up in this new age in 2023, 2024. Like it's, you know, remembering all the makeover shows and people used to bring in like body language experts or sorry, it, this kind of happened more in tabloids. If you saw like a couple out together, like a relationship and it was like, we need to bring in the body language experts. You know, if you think they're splitting up and it was like, they were, if they cleaned up in the noughties as well, where are they all now? How do you qualify in being a body language expert? Let me know about that as well. Hello, flockculture at gmail.com. Anyway, the good lip readers of TikTok were like, let me read those little... Let me read those lips. I'm sorry for making that noise. And they were like, what was she saying? What was the goss? And many deduced that she had said that basically she'd gone over to her friend and former co-star, never forget that herself and Timothy Chalamet, Selena Gomez and Timothy Chalamet, previously starred in a Woody Allen movie that I don't think either of them want to acknowledge. That's a capital F flop. I will tell you that right now. Not even the movie, just Woody Allen and everything about that in general. Anyway, Apparently, Selena came over and went, I went over and asked Timothy Chalamet for a picture. She didn't say his full name. The part was just like, I went over and asked Timothy for a picture. And Kylie Jenner, his previously rumoured girlfriend, now pretty much confirmed because they were like, they were, they were, it was close girls. It was intimate. It was giving, it was giving, I shouldn't be looking at this. It was giving, I don't know. It was very painful to watch them like, dragging the necklaces out of each other and attempting to have any kind of significant conversation. The lip readers did not have a, as much fun with that conversation, let me tell you. Anyway, they went to the Golden Globes together. They were sitting together, whatever. So apparently, Selena went over to, her, to the two gals and were like, went over, asked Tim for a photo there. And Kylie was like, absolutely the fuck not. So obviously the internet 
than a blaze, right? Because there's nothing more than the internet loves than a feud, particularly a celebrity feud. And these are two celebrities that already have history. If anyone remembers Eyebrowgate, if you don't, I'm so jealous of your untouched brain that still has wrinkles in it. Mine is so smooth. It's like a bowling ball. You could throw it down a lane. Anyway, Eyebrowgate, to simplify it, was basically Selena Gomez had put up a picture of her eyebrow or something or her face and then, like, allegedly, Hayley Bieber and Kendall Jenner and Kylie Jenner all kind of started taking the piss out of her. And it, this erupted into these, again, the two fan armies of Selena Gomez and Hayley Bieber, like, knocking heads, just eating the face off each other. And that led to all one thing or another, right? The internet's a flame. The internet is a flame with this. So immediately you have Selena sources, Selena sources coming out being like, no, no, that's not what they were talking about. It was something else. They weren't talking about that. It was something else, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really get enough media coverage. Timothy himself is asked by a pap, I think a TMZ pap. So he has to come out and be like, not what Kylie said. Me and Selena are cool, whatever, right? Now, Selena has, to come out, has had to come out herself. And I think she left this on a comment and like comments by celebs or whatever, where she's like, no, no, like that's not, I did no, that's not what happened. Baby dolls and baby girls. This is what she said in the comment, refuting the original statement. She said, no, I told Taylor about two of my friends who hooked hooked up. Not that that's anyone's business. And it's not. I agree, Selena. But the issue is her just not... I feel like she thinks she's she's not famous or as famous as she is. You know what I mean? She is potentially still the most followed person on Instagram. And I'm not saying society should be like this, but unfortunately society is like this and that will pick up on every small thing about celebrity interactions. And especially with like this rush reporting and social media's eagerness to be first and publications' eagerness to be first. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you said. It's all, the narrative's already gone. You know what I mean? So in some ways I'm like, should you have said anything? Probably not, because like Kylie was never going to say anything. You know what I mean? Anyway, she's come out now again since, because again, her saying this in the comments of that news post weren't enough to dispel any of these rumours. She's now come out and been like, I'm taking some time off social, which she does so regularly. She, it was the same thing after, I'm pretty sure we talked about the VMAs on this podcast, when she was kind of seen maybe talking about, I can't remember what it was, I think it was maybe making faces about Chris Brown's performance, which if she was doing that, valid baby girl, flop. Flop, flop, floppity, flop. But I don't know. Selena Babes, I suppose my my biggest point is I'm like, is this industry for you? You know what I mean? You seem to love the makeup and the bits and the humanitarian bits. Do that. And I know, obviously she's gotten this like second wind with Only Murders in the Building and the acting and stuff, but I, I think she, there's a real disconnect between her that she doesn't recognize that she's just this level of a celebrity and she doesn't have to be but she seems to continue to engage with the internet and fandom and social media you could just not do that either you know what I mean and don't girl I get it permanently online the phone cannot be removed from my hand addicted to every social media platform I get that it's really hard to be offline but babe I think now's the time you know what I mean I don't know why Taylor hasn't gotten like, what are those crooks that shepherds have? They're called crooks, right? I'm surprised she hasn't got one of them, got you around the neck and just yanked you out of the room, you know? Anyway, anyway, hopefully Selena is listening to this and heeding my advice. I just want what, I want what's best for you, you know what I mean? Go make that last album, make it as good as Revival and then, you know, just retire. You don't need the money, babe. 
I don't think. Anyway, from one acting great to several others in potentially not a great project, let's get into this week's flop. True Detective season one turns 10 this year, if you can believe that. It set the bar high with its intense storytelling, complex characters, and a dark, atmospheric tone that left audiences craving more. It also came in the midst of what popular culture refers to as the McConaissance, a period of rejuvenation for lead actor Matthew McConaughey, as viewers watched him regale about time and exchange barbs with co-star Woody Harrelson. Their on-screen chemistry, unquestionable. A year later, season two hits our screens, and something seems off. The anticipation turned into disappointment, and the once-promising series faced criticism, and possibly worse, scepticism. Were Harrelson's and McConaughey's shoes simply too big to fill? Or were there other problems at hand? Joining me to discuss, to talk, True Detective, Season 2, is movies editor for entertainment.e, Brian Lloyd. Enjoy. Brian Lloyd, you're very welcome back to Flop Culture. How are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. We'll Happy get to New our... Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Happy Year. New Year. This is, yeah, it is technically. We can still say that's fine. Because this, <laughs> is, this is the first week that it's back and it's normal, isn't Do it? Do you have a cut-off point? For New Year? Yeah. Yeah, when kind is this really going is out? this week, isn't it? It's yeah, going is, out this week. It's going to... Yeah, we can still say it. Yeah. Like, it's... And when it gets into double digits, then you're kind of... Then it's, it's getting into ropey yeah. territory. Yeah. Yeah. Will it be double digits? I suppose anyway, like it doesn't matter. It's whatever. fine. Happy New Year, okay. listeners. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year, Brian. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> what you talking about, everyone? Okay, this is unhinged. We'll get to our Pushing Daisies episode eventually. It's coming, people. I swear to fuck. When, are we, when are we gone? Please. It like. is. It is. But I needed. I need to bring the big guns in because obviously there's a new season of True Detective on the horizon. Yes. And there's a very floppy season associated with True Detective. Very floppy. Season two, True Detective. So I've brought you in to talk about it. But uh, we we can't talk about season two without talking about season one, obviously. Were you very much swept up in the hype at the time of release? Or did you watch it a bit later? Because I watched it a bit later. Did you? Yeah. I watched it as it was happening. Okay. I was hooked. Okay. Completely, start to finish. Mm. Absolutely, couldn't get enough of it. Um, and I think the reason why I liked it so much was was because I haven't, I at least myself, anyway, I hadn't seen that kind of a complex story, like a complex noir, like L.A. Confidential, James Ellroy kind of thing, done on telly ever. I've never seen it done. Like you look at murder mysteries, you look at like big sort of crime sagas on TV generally tend to be episodic. Like Law and Order, for example. Okay, fine, yeah, Benson and all the rest of it, there's a will-they-won't-they kind of thing that kind of carries through. But generally speaking, they're episodic. Mm. They end at the end of the episode, guy gets killed, woman gets sent off to prison, Colombo, you know, they find the guy and all the rest of it. It's very much da-da-da-da-da. Weird but that it, you're blaming the woman there in that scenario, Brian. That's in Colombo? In, I don't know, were you talking about Law and Order? Well, Law Just and interesting Order, that it was the woman that went to jail. Yeah, mm. but like in Law and Order, they're like, I mean, in SVU, there were enough kind of episodes of it where there were, you know, they had gender parity going mm. on in Law and Order. They did. We love equality, girls. You know, that's what I'm saying. We support women's rights and women's wrongs. Carry on. <laughs> Anyways, that's good. I like that. Women's rights. I can't claim it, but it is my favourite. That's, that's, that's fantastic. But um, 
So yeah, so like a, a long serial, uh, not a long, but like a serialized story that kind of unfolded episode to episode. I hadn't seen that done in a while and True Detective really got that very, very well. I think the fact that you had Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, who were legit, like, I mean, this was bang smack in the middle of the McConaughey 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 was that, was that the agreed I think upon? The, I think it's McConaughey. Yeah, but see, when I was Googling it, I think in Wikipedia it's McConaughey, but I'm surely like McConaughey is yeah. better. Yeah. Anyway, the midst of this rejuvenation of Matthew McConaughey kind of moving out of rom coms yeah. and into more quote unquote, that was a weird way to say that, but prestige yeah. material, yeah. starting with the Lincoln Lawyer and then this. And also, he'd never really done TV before. I'm no. pretty sure. No, no, he hadn't. Like, I mean, if he had, I mean, it probably would have been like one episode of Murder, She Wrote or something like yeah. that. And I don't even know if he did that. I'm just trying. <laughs> I would love to see that, <laughs> Matthew. Have you ever seen those lists of people that are on Murder, She Wrote? It's insane. Like George Clooney, Linda Hamilton, Brian Cranston, Leslie. Like they're, anyways. It's like ER. Everyone was in ER. Everyone walked Everyone through was ER, ER at some point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It is the McConaughey-sons. McConaughey-sons. No, McConaughey-sons. No, McConaughey-sons. just McConaughey-sons. Yeah. But okay. can we change that? Okay, maybe we need to change that as a culture. I don't really like McConaughey-sons. Why don't we just say McConaughey? So anyway, that's neither here nor there. Carry on. Point being, it was bang smack in the middle of that. He was doing really, really interesting work, you know, moving away from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, which I feel was his best of the rom-coms. I think that yeah, was... Yeah, absolutely. Like, Kate Hudson, that dynamic. Brilliant. Come on, like, yeah. fantastic. It was the one about the ghosts. That's where people were really, like, really mad. Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past. Like, Stop that now. Yeah. Like, Stop that. Appreciate a high, I love a high concept. Love a high concept, yeah. especially in a comedy setting. But that was kind of like, okay, Michael Douglas is in there and he's got the cravat and, you know, what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Now, I will say, it would make an iconic episode of Flap Culture. So if you really like that movie, please come on and convince me otherwise. <laughs> Keep pitching. It's terrible. It's, it's yeah. Terrible. Anyway. But, yeah, so like McConaughey doing interesting work. Woody Harrelson, I mean, yeah, he'd done TV in the past. He'd done Cheers and what have you. But he hadn't done it in a long, long time. And I don't think... You know, McConaughey and Harrelson had worked together bar, I think they did like, was it Ed TV? Do you remember Ed TV? Vaguely, yeah, now that you say it. Yeah, the two of them were in it together and I think they probably might have done one or two other kind of bits and bobs. But this is the first time the two of them were actually together. Yeah. So even on the basis of, you know, you know, a noir, southern, gothic detective crime story, you still had McConaughey in his kind of you know, his redemption arc and then being joined with uh, McConaughey just made it, just made it, it was one of those things that like, it's such a cliche term now, but like it was appointment viewing. You had to turn in every Sunday to watch it or Monday morning as the case was. And I loved it. I was fucking hooked. I had so many theories about it. None of them panned out. And I think that's the thing, the thing that I loved about the first one and what pissed me off about the second one was you can watch it and formulate all these theories and all these ideas. But when you get to the end of the story and it's not what you thought, but you're still enjoy you've still enjoyed the, the, the ride, as it were, that's a great show. That worked in the first season. It didn't work in the second season. Mm, yeah. Do you think True Detective was meant to be an anthology series? Or oh, was yeah. it kind of so you don't think it was like a one and done thing and then the success of the first season it was like right we'll build it out because the more I've sat back and thought about it and having watched I've actually watched all the seasons now yeah. including the upcoming season 4 which I'm going to talk about a little bit more on the Patreon when it's done so if you want to subscribe and get that but a part of me feels like was that one of the issues as to why like would it have just been should season 1 have just been left alone and let it be at that like should we have never built out this universe and that's why it's suffered so much no and no, I'll tell okay. you why right why Lotus is the example I would use yeah yeah right? like 
Yes, White Lotus was initially planned as a first, as a one season, one and done BBC drama kind of thing. You know, as in like, as in the, when I say BBC drama, I mean as in we're doing one series and that's it. We're not doing another one. I think if Nick Pizzolatto was a better writer, he could have easily cranked out a great second season. He could have done it. And I think this is like, it's a common kind of uh, thing with music journalism, but like it's the, the, the saying is, is like, you have 20 years to write your first album. You have six months to write your second album. And that's really what True Detective was in my mind. It was a second album, which is to say, you're massive, massive success. Now you've got to go crank it out again. Now you've got to go make another one again. And I think, I think he was probably tipped. Uh, probably he... If he had any kind of a sense of himself, I mean, if you have like Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson and you have the biggest TV station in the world on your side, you have to kind of think, okay, I should probably have something prepared for the second season, even sketched out or something like that. And the more I've watched, because I rewatched the second season and it's so clear to me that this was like, he had an idea and then when it actually came time to do it, he was like, oh shit, I actually don't have an idea. I've just got like a vibe and a couple of characters and now I'm going to have to try string a story together, which is why when it came to like the final episode or the, the second last episode in the final episode, it was like, oh, none of all this other stuff made any, didn't have anything to do with it. It was just a, a just plain old revenge story. Mm. It was, that's all this was. Like there was loads of red herons. None of it went anywhere. None of it meant anything. It all just fucking evaporated. Like, whereas in True Detective, the, uh, sorry, the first season, I should say, it felt more like it wasn't necessarily misdirection. It was just like this thing that you thought meant something meant something else, mm. which is really good writing. Whereas in True Detective season two, it was like this thing that you thought meant something didn't mean anything at all and throw it away. Like, And it then just gets reduced down to a very, very simple story. like Yeah, because the second season came a year after yeah. the first season, maybe even a little bit less. Do you remember the hype around there being a second season and the initial... Because, yeah. ca- again, I came to True Detective season one late and I watched it and, like, binged it and I wish I had been there at the time when it was being released to have that appointment television viewing because yeah. it's one of those shows that I just remember so specifically like the moments in it and being like actively glued to my seat, like nails in the couch being like, what's going to happen? But I remember, I remember the news around the casting and obviously there was Irish interest. It's Colin Farrell. And I, I I thought the two detectives in this were Colin Farrell and Vince Vaughn. And I wonder if a lot of other people think the same who never came into the second season. It's very, and I also think that's one of the issues with the season is that there's too many characters follow because the detectives in the season are actually Colin Farrell Rachel McAdams who's very good in this I would say and Taylor Kitsch who people will know as gorgeous gorgeous boy Mm. Friday Night Lights Tim Riggins couldn't remember his name remember I got there like I was there but there was loads of other people attached to it initially as well you had people like now a lot of this could have been rumour but apparently there was like because the show had become so big like apparently they were they went to people like Kate Blanchett Josh yeah. Brolin Joaquin Phoenix Michael Fassbender Jessica Chastain Christian Bale Elizabeth Moss Brad Pitt at one point like people, I remember the Brad Pitt one I remember like people that people wanted to be involved yeah. in this and then it just fizzled like a kind of like I sometimes I wonder if Rachel McAdams even wants to acknowledge this. You know what I mean? Like it's it's weird, isn't it? Because mm. like you know, I think I think she was great in it. I do mm. think she was great in it, and it's weird. Like I was thinking about it. 
I can see why everyone chose to do this. Like, you know, Vince Vaughn, he wanted to do more serious stuff. He's kind of been known for, you know, old school and those kind of like Todd Phillips comedies. And He was attempting a, a vaunaissance. He was, exactly. He was attempting a vaunaissance. Same with Colin Farrell. He was a little bit further along the way, I think. You know, that sort I of way. I think we did an episode on Colin Farrell's flop era. I think, is, the, is this him just coming out of this it? This is, yeah, this is, again, trajectory. I don't think he's fully all the way no. out of it, but he's coming. And I think, and it, but again, it was that thing of Colin, you know, he obviously was going through his own personal issues, had mm. a lot of flop moments and then it was like oh my god he's doing trajectory season 2 this is going to be the making of him and again he's one of the best things about this series mm-hmm. it's just a pity about quite literally maybe everything else I would yeah. say yeah like there was so many th- like, and that's the thing is like everyone was good in it but it was the story around them and the direction around them was shit mm. but they were doing great work and that's kind of the like, looking back on it, like, there are so many scenes in the second season where I'm like, oh, that's so good. Like, you know, that bit when, <laughs> like, I laugh, I shouldn't laugh, but when he's beating the shit out of that kid, <laughs> it's just, you're just like, oh my God, he's so terrifying. He's it's, so terrifying. He's so terrifying. He's so good at playing just white, hot, rageful. Right? Yeah. He's not fully evil, but like, there is there is something There's evil something, in yeah. him. He is, it, the way that it kind of passes over his eyes, it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. He's so good. And even Rachel McAdams, like that bit when she's doing like group therapy and she's talking about her sex life and all this kind of stuff. Like, again, it's that really like, nuanced, you know, psychologically complex performances that I think Rachel McAdams doesn't get to do enough. Mm. Like, you know, that kind of way. Like, and I think because she's kind of trapped in the same way Jennifer Garner is trapped, I think, is that like, uh, we associate her with such kind of positive characters. Like, have you seen, um, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret? No, but I keep hearing really good. You'd love it. Okay. You'd love it. And she's brilliant in it. And she's one of these people that, like, every time you see her on screen, you just warm to her instantly. Mm. And I can see why she did True Detective too, because her character, Bezerides, is, is is horrible. Like, she's a really angry, like, closed-off, walled person and all the rest of that. And it makes sense that she has all these kind of walls up and everything. So I can see why she chose to do it, but it's just she was completely let down. They were all let down, I think. Talk about the story then. What is... So we mentioned it's an anthology series. For anyone who's, again, not familiar, it's a different story every season. Every season, yeah. So we're a world away from season one. We're in Vinci, Los Angeles. It's gritty, like very dark, very corrupt, neo-noir. What is going on? Who are the characters we meet? What is the mystery at hand here? The mystery at hand is is that this city manager is found on the side of the road uh, with his eyes burnt out by hydrochloric acid. Um, Taylor Kitch's character is this uh, California Highway Patrol officer on a motorbike. He finds the body. Um, Then... Rachel McAdams and Colin Farrell are brought in to investigate and it turns out that the guy who was a city manager who was planning this high-speed transit line through California and Vince Vaughn is this, uh, you know, career criminal kingpin who's now trying to go straight and he had invested money as a part of this high-speed transit line and had given money to this city manager who's now died and his money is all gone. So he has to go back to his criminal life, if, for lack of a better word, in order to make his money back. But also as well, he wants to know what happens. So then he has a kind of a 
sort of uh, client relationship with Colin Farrell, Colin Farrell's character, where he's like, find out what's going on here, get my money back, and I'll give you a piece of it. Colin Farrell has his own shit because, you know, he's divorced and he's got a kid, but the parentage of the kid is left uncertain. And then, you know, Taylor Kitsch's character is this war veteran who's suffering from PTSD, but he is also gay, or he's closeted, closeted he's closeted yeah. rather, I should say. Then Rachel McAdams' character just has this constant cloud of rage around her. Has been brought, was brought up kind of in a cult environment yeah. and really struggles with that. Her sister had addiction issues and she's trying to deal with that. Her dad was very hands-off. The mom died as a result kind of of the dad just being so hands-off. Like it's, as it, we're explaining this, is this so the much. core of the issue? It's so fucking convoluted. Yes. I found myself, like, I will say, right, I didn't hate it. Yeah. And I found myself wanting to know what was happening because I didn't understand what was happening. I needed to know where it ended because throughout I was kind of like, I didn't really get what Frank's deal was. I didn't really, it was only when I went back and read, I was like, oh, he was trying to go straight. He'd invested in this train thing. I yeah. thought it was just general crime things. Yeah. And then you're trying to keep on track of, okay, Colin Farrell, like, he's playing it straight. He's also not. He's corrupt. And Taylor's, you know, struggling and he's meeting up with this fella they used to get with. But he's also, like, seeing this girl to try and cover it all up. And he has this complicated relationship with his mom that's kind of never... It's just... Listen, if this sounds complicated, it's because it fucking is, unfortunately. That's it. And, like, one of those characters would have been enough to sustain an entire season. Pick one and do it right. Mm. You know, like, it's it's that Gordon Ramsay thing. If you go to a restaurant and there's 50 57 things on the menu chances are they're going to do 57 things shit Mm. whereas if you go to a restaurant and there's like three or four things on the menu they're going to do them really really well and I think that was what made True Detective the first season great the third season great and consequently the fourth season very good as well Mm. is that you pick two characters you develop them really really well you make us invested in them and then if the story gets all kind of over the top convoluted we're not sure what's going on blah 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 at least we can cling on to the characters. They're at the core. And they're at the core. So they're our surrogate. So if they're confused, we're confused and it's okay to be confused. And like, you know, even something like, again, I keep going back to it and it's just because like it's a California thing, but like in LA Confidential, there's three characters. There's three main characters. There's Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce and Kevin Spacey. And then, spoiler alert, Kevin Spacey gets killed, you know, more or less in the middle of the film. So you've basically just got two characters that are carrying through the stories. Kim Bassinger is supporting, and David Strathairn is supporting, um, uh, what's his face, James Cromwell is supporting. This though, they never, we never knew who we were actually following. Who was the person that we're supposed to pay attention to? It's actually split four ways, and that's just going to fucking confuse anybody. Like, mm. Even if you have six episodes or eight episodes, or however many it was, I think it was six, wasn't it? For season two, eight. Yeah, it was eight. Yeah. Right, so you have eight episodes. That's still, that's almost, that's hurting you, not hindering you. That, or sorry, that's uh, hurting you, not helping you. Because even though you've got eight episodes, you're still trying to keep all those plates spinning and all the rest of it. But who, who the fuck, like, unless you're, unless you're watching it with, like, a notebook taking notes, yeah. you're going to get confused. Like Because it's like the three officers as well are from, are different, yeah. kind of varying, poli- I'm going to explain this so badly, but like varying police districts. Yeah. And it's, that's why they're all involved in the, and they want kind of ownership over it. Yeah. And they're all kind of underhanding each other. But that's also the issue as well, is there's no none of them really give a fuck about each other. You you get the sense towards the end that they actually do kind of care about each other, yeah. but it's not that like insane camaraderie that you have with um, 
uh, Woody Harrelson and uh, Matthew McConaughey's characters in season one. And again, I know we keep referencing season four and I know you haven't seen it yet. Just mm. watch it. It's very good. Um, but their their relationship yeah. in season four is that it's too hard with three people. And even when they try to get it, that it's like uh, Colin Farrell's character and Rachel McAdams' character uh, at, towards the end where they're trying to kind of push that more forward that it's like kind of romantic and they're together. Like, I was just like, I don't buy... It's not even that I didn't buy it, but it was just like, I was like, it's too late. Yeah. I don't know. It's too hard to make. It's I, too, it's too many people. Too many I, have a, I have a theory, right? I have a theory that he wrote half of this and handed it in and HBO were like, no, nah, fuck this. Cut that out. Cut that out. Make them fuck um, and just make this way more simplified. Yeah. And then like the remaining three episodes or four episodes, I would say, were way more, I don't want to say simplified, but they were definitely cut down, I mm. think, and hewn away. And that can happen in a story, you know, that kind of way that it's like, this makes this has been resolved, that's been resolved, so now we're just down to the core part of the story. That didn't really, I, that, I didn't feel that here. This just felt more like, we're just, we're just tying this off. We're just literally just like, just cutting this out and we're just going straight to the main part of it. Yeah. And I think that's why it failed ultimately as a, as a season, like, is because so much of it had been cut away by the time you got to the end of it, you didn't really care about the characters. And it's not even this bullshit of like, you know, <clears throat> all characters have to be likeable in order to get the story. No, that's not it. I will say that's one of the points that I don't agree. When I read a lot of the criticism of the show at the time, it's that it's too dark and it's very grim. And I'm a bit like, no, I'm not read. If that's not your bag, fair enough. I'm not really sure. I think that's what added to it, especially yeah. in comparison to season one where the two characters got their quote-unquote happy ending. And again, sorry, spoilers for True Detective yeah. season one, but like they solved the mystery. Yeah. They're friends. They don't die. Season two, everyone is fucked. Literally, no one meets a good end, even though you kind of seem to think it's working out for everyone, including Vince Vaughn's mm. Frank, the criminal guy. I thought that added to it. I liked how dark it was, how bad the city felt. Yeah. I get if you're in a bad headspace, not exactly uplifting no, viewing. Jesus but it, so much of the criticism was like, it's very dark, it's very grisly. And I'm like, okay. And But then that comes goes back to my point of, was it just that it was attached to the true detective name? Would this have worked as a standalone police cop no, drama? That's no, that's the thing. That's yeah. the thing. I don't think it would have at all. Like, I don't think... The the fact that it was a true detective, I mean, yeah, that might have uh, added a layer of expectation. It might have made think, oh, God, I love the first one. This one's going to be great. Mm. But leave aside true detective for the minute. Just take it on its own merits. It's still a badly written piece of television. Mm. Like, it's still, it still has all those problems. Change it to whatever you want. It's still bad. Like, And even look at, like, and again, I know we keep talking about it. No one's seen it yet. But, like, true detective night country, like... There you have, you have the new name, Night Country. And it has some references to the first season, but not many. But you could easily take those small little Easter egg references, whatever you want to call them, out. And this is a completely standalone TV series. It's like a Scandi noir thing. Mm. Like it has nothing to do with anything that's come before or since. It's just got the name True Detective. Like, And, you know... I, 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 that's what I'm saying. That's a really well piece. That's a really well written piece of television. The first one was a really well written piece of television. The third season had its moments. I, I didn't follow through on it, but the second season is a fucking mess. Mm. And it's just because it was really badly written. And I think, you know, even like even stuff like the dialogue in it, 
We have to can talk about please, the dialogue. Can we please, please talk about the scene in either the second last or the last episode where Frank is saying goodbye to his wife. Frank yeah. has realised that it basically, oh, this is so even complicated to explain. Know, yeah. All of his casinos have been bought up by this Russian, Russian yeah. other criminal fella. So Frank's like, I'm fucked. But Frank's like, I'm going to get revenge out on them. I need to send my wife to Venezuela. She's pregnant at this point as well. And that was a whole storyline of yeah, them yeah, trying yeah, to yeah, that he was, uh, yeah, children. Again, like, yeah, it was very weird. Anyway, so he's like, I need to get her the fuck to Venezuela, sort her out. I can do it with all my criminal connections. I'm going to meet her thereafter, but I need to basically burn down all the casinos so the Russians don't really get anything and then I'm going to murder them all, essentially, right? The scene where he's saying goodbye to his wife, who, I'll get the actor's name in a second. Kelly Riley. Carrie, she's in Yellowstone at the yeah. minute. I, it came up on my TikTok. I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, anyway. Have you seen Yellowstone, by the way? No, but I do. I think I'm going to cover it in some aspect for the podcast because it's it kind of fascinates me how huge of a TV show it is, but nobody I know watches it. It's like Dynasty. Or like two people. It's like Dynasty. Yeah. It's, it's, it's campy. Like, yeah. you'd love it. Do you think? I think See, you'd I love it. I, I think you'd love it, ironically. But is it, what, is it not about, like... Cowboys and or yeah, whatever. It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's like a cowboy ranch and the the Yellowstone ranch, and it's like I don't know if I give a fuck about any of that. I, yeah, well, like I mean, I don't either. But like, it's very like I watched one season of that and I was laughing my ass off watching it. Like okay. it's funny, like how, okay. it's funny how kind of over the top it is. Okay. Um, but problematic, massively problematic. Oh, like, okay. Oh yeah, definitely. Like like loads of Native American people have problem with it. They said like it's just total bullshit and like. There's a great article, I think it's in Rolling Stone about Taylor Sheridan basically like, you know, talking about, it talks about how like Taylor Sheridan thinks that, uh, and this kind of ties into True Detective, is that, you know, all white men are, you know, the endangered species of the world now, white working class men are the endangered species of the world. It's like, really Taylor? In this fucking day and age you go with that? What? And like no. True Detective season two does that a little bit as well, I think, because like yeah, like I mean that was what was great about the first season, and I think what they missed about the second season was was that first season was about masculinity and crisis, the idea of like you know Matthew McConaughey's character is just repeating all this really nihilistic stuff, but it's all kind of a bit of a put on. He's just a really hurt person and a really damaged person, and he's trying to hide it in this sort of like I don't give a shit about anything. Whereas Matthew McConaughey's character was a complete asshole to his wife, slept around, um, you know, just really misogynistic. And in the end, he got exactly what he deserved, which was he was completely alone. And then on the second season, it was like, oh, actually, no, maybe there's a good, maybe there's a point for being such a terrible person as a man and beating the shit out of kids. Maybe that is the right thing to do. Yeah, it was, it's weird because like there's a sector of the fan base that 100% did not get that message of season one. They're yeah. just like, lads, yes! Yeah. I mean, it's so dark and we love the Oh, yeah. yes! Woody Harrelson! Yeah! Because even if you look at the comments about any of the, like, on any of the posts about season four, because it's led oh, by two women, women, it's like, bring back season one! Would you just play season one again for fun? Like, they just don't yeah. get it. And there's, in some ways, I think, was Rachel McAdams' character, like, purely to right some of the wrongs of season yeah. one and the fact that it was so male-focused and the women in season one were essentially just accessories to these men but even then they kind of did her dirty and oh, they the totally way it was. did her like dirty it's... yeah they totally did her dirty and like even like it felt like such a fucking cop out in the end and again who cares because no one's going to watch season two of True Detective after this but like the fact that it's Rachel McAdams and Kelly Riley survive at the end that they're the ones that make it out that felt like it was just sort of like it's okay all the men are dead and yeah. the women are going to go on and that's and it's just like 
fuck off. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sorry, very quickly to go back to the scene that I was talking about. That oh, I sorry, yeah, left. Jesus, yeah. This, so Frank's trying to say goodbye to the wife. That scene feels a week long. Like it's 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 ten at least ten minutes too long. For anyone who hasn't watched, it's be, and I'll try and get a clip, but it's basically him they're saying goodbye to each other but she's basically like I'm not going to Venezuela without you I'm not like we're in this together so then he's like trying to say well I don't want to be married to you anymore and he throws out his ring whatever and then she throws out her ring the scene should have probably ended there but there's another five to maybe seven minutes of dialogue in which they're both just like we're so in love with each other and she's like I can't go to Venezuela without you and he's like you have to and she's like I can't and he's like you have to and she's like but I can't and he's like you have to like that's the entire, the entire scene. It drove, me and Kim were looking at each other being like, because to be honest, up until that, like the dialogue goes off a fucking cliff the second last two episodes. Because I do think they're good, like you mentioned Rachel McAdams' therapy scene. I thought like, as I don't really know if it fits with the season, but like Frank's uh, thing in the bed when he's looking at the water stains and he's like talking about his childhood and stuff. I did actually enjoy that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I literally have Frank's wife's dialogue in the last episode. It's fucking shocking. Whole scene where they're leaving. Jesus Christ. That's... Yeah, that's fair, yeah. It's like, it's painful. It is. It is. Like, there are so many... There's so many moments in it where it was like... The dialogue just felt... Coming out of Vince Vaughn just felt so fucking clunky. And... You know, like the, that big kind of... But is of, it him? Is it the writing or is it the actor or is it both? I th- both, I think. Both. Because he's definitely not the strongest part about this. No, I don't yeah. necessarily think he's bad, but when you compare him to a Colin or a Rachel... Yeah, yeah he's... I don't really know where I land on Taylor Kitsch's performance, I'm going to be honest. I thought he was good. I mean, it's... It, I, I, uh, it's not convincing. Like, I think the whole point of it was, was that he didn't know himself and he was kind of playing it very confused, which I think is the point, you know? Um, that... He but he played a conf- he played confused very well because his character was confused, so it made sense for him to be a little bit wishy washy. The problem with Vince Vaughn I found was was that some of the language he was using was so flowery, you know, like you know, was stridently and all this, and you're just like, it sounds wrong coming out of your voice. It sounds wrong in your voice, and it sounds wrong with your character. And I know what he was trying to do. I know what Nick Pizzolatto was trying to get at. He was trying to get at that kind of Mickey Spillane, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler, like using big words, but by tough men and all the rest of it. And I get it. It just sounds fucking cringy as shit. Mm. Yes, in the first season with Matthew McConaughey, it you are just hooked. You know, time is a flat circle, you know. You know, we are repeating this all over again. That that whole bit where they're walking into the police station after they've saved everyone, that scene is just... Oh, my God. Holy shit. Like, and even the bit when, like, and I, I, I still think about it, this is the best cap to an episode I've ever, like, the end of an episode I've ever seen is when he's talking to the two detectives and he goes, how indeed, how is it that we found this body... 25 years ago and then here it is again and he just turns it over and he goes start asking the right fucking questions and then the music hits and you're just like I'm fucking in that never happened in this season never once happened did it feel like oh shit something's happened here never happened and that's just bad writing we're going to take a quick break but we'll be back with more right after this There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're very welcome back. Brian, I do want to ask, I feel we're coming in hard. Yeah. I think we're right to come in hard. Yeah. Does anything about this show work for you? I've talked about the setting and kind of the grisliness and obviously there are specific performances for me. Does anything about this work for yeah, you? Plenty. Yeah, plenty. Plenty. Like, I think Colin Farrell great, was great in it. I thought he was really interesting. I think this was at a very pivotal moment in his career, I think, where he was transitioning away from leading roles into more sort of character-driven stuff. This was very much a character-driven performance for him. I think Rachel McAdams, she got to do work that she doesn't generally get to do. Um we talked about him a little bit. I think we should talk about him more. Taylor Kitsch, I thought, was great in this. Because he was coming off the back of a massive, massive flop, John Carter. And he was being positioned as this, like, he's going to be fucking huge. What's John Carter? John Carter was this uh, sci-fi adventure that Disney did that bombed massively. Okay. And it kind of set Taylor Kitsch back 20 years and the director of it, Andrew Stanton, had done like Toy Story and he was one of these Pixar people and this was his first live action film and people were like, like I remember people were talking about John Carter as being an possible Oscar kind of hopeful like oh because the tone of it was really like epic and like mm. Lord of the Rings and then it just was a wet fart and went nowhere. I still think people are wrong about it. You should watch it. I love it. I okay. think it's great. But anyways, John Carter bombed and then he went and did this, I think like about a year or two after it, like maybe like six months, I can't remember. But he was still kind of, you know, B, B to possible A-list actor because he was the breakout of Friday Night Lights. Yeah, like, he everyone was. remember. I, the sad thing is, I don't think people remember his name, but people remember the name Tim Riggins. You yeah. know what I mean? He was like, yeah, that, like that's it. Like true, I, I think uh, true detective. I think um, Friday Night Lights had, you know, that was the launch pad. That was like the ER, his mm. ER. So like people were kind of positioning him for a sort of a George Clooney kind of thing, going mm. from TV to movies. So to see him going back to TV wasn't a step back because this was prestige television and this was like the age of prestige television so it wasn't seen as a step back from I think he was really good on it I think the character he played was unusual in the sense of you don't generally tend to see you know neo-noir crime stories deal with closeted homosexuality in that kind of way and any time at every you do see kind of homosexual characters played in these stories it's usually as the butt of a joke or they're kind of seen as passive characters or they're sort of like just, you know, window dressing, you know, that sort of way, whereas mm. he had a pivotal role to play in it. Um, 
Yeah, and like I loved, you know, like Leonard Cohen doing the doing the opening music for it. I thought it was really Brilliant. good. It had that kind of like really jazzy yeah. sort of thing going. Yeah, it had its moments, but you know, the, the, the difference between the first season and second season is like literally night and day. Like even the fact that like they kept changing the directors for each episode. Like you had Justin Lin do the first two episodes. Justin Lin for anyone who didn't know, was a music video director and then went off and did Fast and Furious and then did Star Trek Beyond. Pretty much a blockbuster director. Then throughout the season, then you had our own John Crowley who had, was coming off the back of... Juan John. He, I think he was doing Brooklyn while he was doing this because I remember interviewing him for Brooklyn mm. and asking him about True Detective. And it's funny in a way because <clears throat> he kind of talked about True Detective like it was a job. And you can really see that. You can see that he was just like, okay, I know how to direct. I know how to do this kind of a sort of TV cop drama thing. I can do it pretty well. I can put a bit of, you know, flash on it and I can put a bit of a spin on it. But ultimately, I'm just kind of moving stuff around here. Like, compare that to what he did in Brooklyn and it's a completely different set of, you know, you you can see when he gives a shit and then you can see when he's, I don't want to say phone it in, but work on a job. He's doing it to the best of his abilities, but he's not putting any of his soul into it. Like, mm. And I think that's kind of the problem that I have with this as well, is, is that, yes, there's a consistent tone, but it's a, pretty un, it's a pretty uninteresting one. It's just very standard. It's like, you know, the tone was set, the imagery was set, the uh, sort of cinematography was set, and then they just brought in people to just sort of like keep the thing going and then by the time it got to the end of it it's like okay well there's nothing really going on here compare that with True Detective again you had Kari Joji Fukunaga you know there are so many scenes in that that series where visually it looks incredible like there's that six minute unbroken run with Matthew McConaughey trying to get a guy out of this trailer park there's another brilliant incredible like and then in the third season there's another scene in it when there's like a bomb goes off in a house and it's a whole thing. I can't think of one scene bar that big shootout. Which I will say. Very well done. Very well done. But that's very it. Very tense. Like, yeah. Oh. yeah, very, very, very tense. That's the one thing I can, I can pick out of my head. I could point out five or six different scenes yeah. in the first season. I could pick out about four or five scenes in the third one. And even in the new one coming out, I can think of a few scenes in it that stick out in my head. In in the second season, I can think of one and that's it. Yeah. How responsible then do you think Nick Pizzolatto is for this? 100% responsible. Yeah. It, it was all on him. It was because he had very well documented problems with Carrie Fukunaga, the director. He, I think, is a director or as a writer, I think he is bound up in his ego quite a bit because he talked about it in the first season that like he actually grew up in that area that that that, that the first season is set he's from there and he talked about how <clears throat> oh I'd never go back there unless I had a big huge production behind me like so he's very I think he's a very kind of um uh tetchy vulnerable kind of creator and I think in the second season, he had full control over, over everything, which is why he kind of picked, I don't want to say journeyman directors, but like he definitely picked directors that he could push around a bit. But subsequently, he didn't have the time and the space to make something as layered and as detailed as the first season was. So consequently, it became out lesser as a result. But yeah, I think it was 100% 
his fault. Like, I think, you know, Colin Farrell, Rachel McAdams, Taylor Kitsch, Vince Vaughn, they're all very, very well, they're all very, very good in it. It's just the story is shit and the script is shit and the direction is bland. And yeah, it, it 100% falls to him. Like, mm. and that's the thing. And like, to be fair, that's the thing in TV is that there's always one person behind it. You know, that kind of way. Like, you look at. Bridgerton, it's Shonda Rhimes. You look at Lost, it was Damon Lindelof. You look at The Sopranos, it's David Chase. You look at Breaking Bad, it's Vince Gilligan. You look at True Detective, it's Nick Pizzolatto. So if it all falls to shit, they're the person that have the fault with it because they have so much creative control. It's not like movies where, you know, there's an army of producers standing by ready to start picking it apart. And then if the producers don't like it, they can kind of fire the director and just bring in an editor and chop it up. That's happened plenty of times. With TV, the, the, the showrunner has the power and he had the power and what he turned out was just, was just not good. So it it falls to him a hundred percent. Michael Lombardo was the president of programming at HBO at the time and he said in an interview about, well he said, our biggest failures, and I don't know if I would consider True Detective too, but when we tell somebody to hit an air date as opposed to allowing the writing to find its own natural resting place when it's ready, when it's baked, we failed. I set him, referring to Pizzolatto, up to deliver in a very short time frame something that became very challenging to deliver. Yeah, that's it. That's 100% it. And I think as well, the fact that he was given a third season this probably speaks to the culture of HBO being like, okay, we set you up to fail here. This didn't work out. Go I think it was try like a, again. Yeah, try again. There was like a two-year gap, I think I want to say, two or three-year gap between season two and season three. There was a fair enough gap. Yeah. I don't I don't have, to have the exact figure. But I'm like trying a, to figure out, I, I try and figure out timescales of shows by what house I was renting in and I can't remember that one, so. But it was, there was a. It was pre-pandemic, right? It was, yeah. And I think it went into the start of the pandemic. Point, point being... Season three is Mahershali and, yeah, we've talked and about Stephen it Dorf, already. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And there was enough of a gap in it that he had time to kind of sit and write it properly, I guess. And also time away from season two to hopefully, like, people... Let the bad like, smell go hey, away. remember that season? That was shit. No, you don't. Here's season three. Perfect. Brilliant. And to be fair, again, that's another, I think that speaks to the strength of the first season is that people were willing to give the third season a go and even the new season as well people are like oh yeah I love the first season I don't know if I watched the third season I definitely didn't like the second season I'll probably give this fourth season a go and that's it like mm. do you have the note do you have yeah. the date go Between on seasons two and three it was four years there you go yeah four year gap three and a half to four years yeah yeah which is plenty of time yeah I mean I just a strange, a strange little show. One Isn't of, it? would you say one of the worst of that decade? Because it got, it hit a lot of worst of 2015 lists. Like yeah. it was on Variety, New York Post, Newsday, TV Guide. I was trying to compare to what else had come out that year. So I think Better Call Saul started that year. Yeah. In terms of some, one of the worst, it's, I'm looking at the worst TV shows of 2015 from Variety. And to be honest, they do acknowledge in the first paragraph that it's like the headline is just kind of grabby to try and get people in. They say no list can really identify the worst TV shows of any given year because the sheer tonnage and volume overwhelms any attempt to watch all of them. Oh my God, if they could see where we are in 2024. But in terms of what else is in that list, you have the only one of significance that I saw was Fear the Walking Dead, which is the... I never got into the Walking, Walking Dead. Dead spin-off. Yeah, neither did I. Yeah. My wife was big into it. My wife okay. loved Walking Dead. And, but like, that was a show that just went too fucking long and started getting, repeating itself and all the rest of it. Yeah. 
Um, no, like I think, yeah, was it the worst TV show of that era? Yeah, probably was, in fairness. Like I think it's like um, there's a lot to be said for lowered expectations, I think. And this was the exact opposite of it. This was sky-high expectations because the first season was so critically and, you know, audiences loved it. It wasn't just one of those shows where critics were going on about it and nobody watched it. Everybody watched it. It was, I hate saying this because it's not really a thing anymore, but like it was a water cooler TV show. People are protective over it to this day. Again, based on the comments that I see, like it's very... The fandom, if you can call it, I'm not sure you can, but whatever. I don't think you like could, the, yeah. it's, oh, it's, no, it's crazy. Kind of, it's, yeah, like it's it's people really do really did identify. They go back for it, like oh yeah, definitely, hundred percent. Like, and I think you know, in the same way that, like, I think you know, like the first season had a lot of problems, but I think they were overshadowed or at least overlooked by you know, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson and the fact that it was unique in that time frame. And it had a clear vision. And it had a clear vision. And you knew what the story was and you were able to follow it. The second season did not have any of that. It just didn't. And you can we can sit here and pull it apart, but ultimately it just didn't have a clear vision of itself. It didn't really know where it was going. And like sometimes that can work. Like you look at Lost, you know, Lost was a show that completely lost the run of itself after three, four seasons. But people still turned into it. People still watched it. Yeah, they were given out or whatever, but they were still watching it because the characters were there. Mm. That you were still, you'd still tune in to see, oh, you know, what's uh, Locke going to do? What's Sawyer going to do? This, True Detective doesn't have that. When it comes to the end of the season, that's it. Those characters are gone. And you've got to reconnect with a new set of uh, characters. And I think in this in, in True Detective, as much as they tried to develop those characters and tried to make them kind of believable and understandable and all the rest of it, they were circling a story that just was complete dog shit. So, like, you could have these really interesting characters, really well-written characters, but the story that they were kind of knocking around in was shit. And I think that's one of the fundamental problems with these prestige television shows is that, that you can write these really in-depth, complex, morally questionable characters, but the story has to make sense, the story has to work, and True Detective is a prime example of really interesting characters in a completely dog-shit story. Like. Not even Colin Farrell can... Not even, not even Colin Farrell and that great moustache he had. Oh, we should looks, talk about that. He looks brilliant. That's another podcast, Brian, I'm afraid. We like, just simply don't have time. But, uh, okay, right. In all seriousness, like, <laughs> I would love to know what was the thinking there. Is it like, I'm playing dirtbag, so I've got to have the moustache and the goatee? Yeah. But then what was going on with the curtains, like? Because then he loses the moustache after the shootout. Was he like, that's a step too far, the moustache needs to be gone. Yeah. But then, not, but then he's committing to the work with Frank then. So surely, I don't know. I don't know. You would think that's he so would... so interesting. That's it. You the next would... time you interview Colin Farrell, will you ask him that? About I wonder the moustache? Yeah. I wonder if he's a bit touchy about it. I don't know. I don't think he is. He doesn't seem really touchy about any of his quote-unquote flops per se. I so. know, because I know a lad that interviewed him and like wouldn't shut up talking about Miami Vice and he was happy to talk yeah. about it like and stuff like that. I think, I think he's good. I think he's in good enough of a place now that he can kind of unwrap you know his like I mean I remember we were talking about Britney Spears and all the rest of it like he seemed pretty open about it like yeah. you know and he loves Irish journalists as well I know that yeah. so I can probably kind of rope that out of him a bit 
Was I do love him in a mustache, though. I, I have love to him say. in a mustache too. Oh my I, God. I, I think he, I think him in a dirtbag mustache. Yeah, I'm just glad it didn't tank his career, and also didn't put him off television because he's also now going to be in the Penguin yeah. series. Looking forward to that, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. Um, Brian, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you? You also have a podcast now. Talk I about that. Do yeah, uh, it's called He Ain't Heavy. It's me and my brother. Um, it's terrible. I don't know why we're doing it. Perfect. Um, Listen in though, good fun, you know. Uh, yeah, and uh, on Instagram, Brian M. Lloyd, I deleted my Twitter yesterday. Yes. Got rid of it because Are it was you on just... threads? Yeah. But I think like, we might get flap culture on threads. I'm not, I'm I not feel ready like to come back a, on threads. I feel like there's a, 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 there's a flap culture episode coming about threads. Yeah. I feel like there's one coming yeah. because it's been a bit of a flop. Yeah, kind of. And Blue Sky is the same as well. Social media, generally, there's a, there's a, there's in, if, you know, in five years time, when the flop culture TV show is in its full, what is it, in its 10th season. I'm obsessed with this optimism. Um, I want to see an episode about social media as a flop. Brilliant. Because it was a flop. Yeah, it is, truly. It's ruined my life. Social media is in a flop era, you have to admit that, Yeah, oh no it is, yeah, Yeah. 100%. But you are on all social medias, bar Twitter if you want to be found. Bar Twitter, yeah. Perfect, brilliant. And you're occasionally on Movies and Booze with me, so... Oh yeah, Movies and Booze, yeah, of course, yeah. And then... I'm on Grief, yeah. Yeah, I'm on Grief and then Ireland AM as well, so... Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, I cannot wait to do Pushing Daisies in 2030, maybe. We'll find time. We'll find time. We'll find it out. We'll figure it out. Brian Lloyd, thank you so much for being on Flop Culture. Thank you. Thanks again to Brian. I'm going to leave all of his links in the show notes if you want to catch up with him and do go check out the podcast, He and Heavy. That's wherever you get podcasts. If you want to watch seasons one through three of True Detective, you can watch them on now with a Now Entertainment membership. And True Detective Night Country, the fourth season, kicks off on January 15th on Sky Atlantic. And you'll also be able to watch On Demand on Now with that same membership. As I said, I will be talking about that season because I've watched it all, but I'm going to wait till it's finished. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more over on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash flopculture. If you want to join us over there, you get ad-free episodes, early access, video podcasts occasionally, and then you get at least, that's minimum two bonus episodes a month. This month we're talking about loads of things. Uh, Kim Kardashian, Hollywood, RIP the app. We're talking about that. Owen Keen is back to talk Fleabag, season two. Lots more. Hope you enjoy it over there. A couple of things I forgot to bring up with Brian at the time of recording. He was not the only one that disliked that show, Quentin Tarantino. Here's a headline from uh, the Irish Independent from that year, 2015, uh, in which Quentin Tarantino said he wouldn't be signing up Irish actor Colin Farrell to appear in his movies anytime soon. I tried to watch the first episode of season one. I didn't get it at all. I thought it was really boring. And season two looks awful. Just the trailer, all these handsome actors trying not to be handsome and walking around like the weight of the world is on their shoulders. It's so serious and they're so tortured, trying to look miserable with their moustaches and grungy clothes. Quentin Tarantino uh, doesn't know a thing about being handsome, like simply quite, quite simply addicted to never serving Quentin Tarantino um, by flap over. Shut up. Get my man Colin Farrell's name out of your mouth. You'd be delighted to have Colin Farrell in any of your movies. Sick of him. Um, I want to go through some more of the reviews as well, especially some of the good ones, just for anyone that is like really into the season, just to prove that maybe you are not alone. Like, because there were some positive reviews. You had this one from David Hinckley of the New York Daily News. He wrote, it's still the kind of show that makes TV viewers reach for phrases like golden age of television drama. 
The second instalment of True Detective goes out of the way not to echo the first, which I do think is a reasonable thing to praise. They could have very simply done the same thing. I'm really glad we didn't get a season two to find out where Ross and Woody Harrelson's characters are now. We don't need it, babes. It's fine. That story, fine on its own. Hank Stuver of the Washington Post said, there's something still overwrought about True Detective, but there's also a mesmerizing style to it. It's imperfect, but well-made. You, Brian Lowry of Variety wrote, although generally watchable, the inspiration that turned the first season into an obsession for many seems to have drained out of writer Nick Pizzolatto's prose. And then finally, we have from Time Magazine, James Poniewozik, faulted an excessive delegation of creative control of Pizzolatto alone, which I think myself and Brian covered, arguing that is responsible for season one's success have been overestimated under the auteurist framework because a lot of his inspiration has come from novels um, and stuff like that. Specific novels, but yeah, I don't know. Do you love True Detective season two? Is there anything in particular about the season that you always come back to in the ways that we do, myself and Brian, for season one? Please, please get in touch at hellofloquilter at gmail.com. Finally, ho, 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 first top of the flops of the year, baby, let's go. You're a flop. Flop, 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 flop. Top of the flops this week. I mean, it's hard to pick anyone other than Joe Coy, really, isn't it? And actually, I would I would give this in tandem with Joe Coy and the Golden Globes, because in some ways, was he set up to fail? Let's question it, right? So Joe Coy, he is a stand-up comedian and he hosted this year's Golden Globes. He was seemingly their 75th choice of presenter. They could not get a presenter. By the looks of it, he was only confirmed a week ago. Lots of reports that Ali Wong had been reached out to, fellow comedian and a winner. She actually ended up picking up an award for Beef on Netflix, which I haven't watched yet. Should I watch that? Please let me know. It's supposed to be very good. They'd asked loads of other people in between. Chris Rock reportedly said no. The guys that host the Smartless podcast said no. There was other names touted around. Jimmy Kivill's obviously doing the Oscars. Trevor Noah's doing the Grammys. They had a much smaller pool to pick out of. And this was the first, quote-unquote, normal Golden Globes in a while. Golden Globes have been dogged with controversy and more specifically the Hollywood Foreign Press Association over issues around lack of diversity, uh, unfair voting practices, stuff like that. They're still really struggling to bounce back from that because then you also had the pandemic. The show went off air for a year, so awards were being given out, but they were literally just being given out on Twitter. Like, you were seeing tweets of people winning. Gerard Carmichael came back and hosted, and that was... Fine to good, I think, in terms of a hosting job. This is a thankless job. Like, this is, and there's also a big difference between being a stand up comedian and being a host, and it's hard to be both, I will say. Joe, however, managed to actually not really be either, to be honest. He, I mean, on paper, in some ways, could this have been a slam dunk for a person? Yeah, but it just, it wasn't in any way. Like, lots of terrible jokes about. Barbie referring to Barbie as a plastic doll with big boobs, which I mean, if we're going to talk literally, yes, correct. Also, does that undermine the entire message of Barbie? Yeah. And also, Nicki Minaj did it better. Big boobs. Anyway, nobody's going to get that other than the gays and the gays. The gays and the gays and the gays. The gays and the days. The gays and the days and the gays again. Um, like, it was, it was a lot. There was a really flash... Taylor Swift joke about the fact that the difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL was that there's less camera shots of Taylor Swift. Ha ha ha! Cuts to a ta- camera shot of Taylor Swift sipping her drink. She's not laughing. You've the bros in the comments being like, "Oh, she's so stuck up and she won't laugh at jokes." It's not that I think the joke is even in bad taste. It just fell flat. And even Joe Coy has said that himself. And so, but also has said he's struggling with the backlash. He said. I had fun, you know, it was a moment that I'll always remember. It's a tough room. It was a hard job. I'm not going to lie. I'd be lying if I said it doesn't hurt. I hit a moment there where I was like, ah, hosting is just a tough gig. 
yes, I'm a stand-up comic, but that hosting position, it's a different style. I kind of went in and did the writer's thing. We had 10 days to write this monologue. It was a crash course. I feel bad, but I got to still say I loved what I did. <sighs> I mean, he I then also went, went like admitted that the Taylor Swift joke specifically was a little flat and was, you know, saying the fact that this Golden Globes on a CBS this year, which shows the football, so it was kind of trying to say that we were coming on after football, this big doubleheader, like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Renee Rapp has come out against him, starring in the upcoming Mean Girls musical. Uh, re- well, it's not really a reboot, but like remake, but it's just a musical film adaptation. Kind of gave out to him about making a lot of jokes about women. I will agree with that. And to be honest, even the jokes that he did make about men, very, very cute and his... You know, I'm making a gesture at the camera for everyone who's watching on YouTube, everyone who's listening. You know what I mean. Saltburn, everyone's watched at this point. That wasn't even a good joke either. You can't just say penis. Can you just, like, I mean, you can't just say penis. And yeah, like me and the other four-year-olds in the room will think that's hilarious. You know what I mean? But I don't know. There has to be something else to it, I think. I don't know. Like, if it was hard getting a host this year, it's going to be diabolical trying to get one next year. Um, though I will say otherwise of an interesting Golden Globes from this from the perspective of having flop Joe Coy the other presenters being really good some people taking it really seriously others not the variance in awards like good Golden Globes good Golden Globes because it was like funny and unpredictable but bad for Joe Coy and I'm not really sure how they're going to recover in terms of next year because like it's a poison chalice absolutely nobody wants that job now so Flops, flops, flops across the board. Anyway, that's it for me. I hope you've enjoyed. We are back next week. As I mentioned, we're on Instagram and TikTok. If you want to keep up with us and what's going up in the next coming weeks, it's at flopculture underscore pod. Please leave a rating of the show. I would love that so much. A five-star review will also get you a personalised bopper flop recommendation at the end of next week's episode if you leave your nickname on Apple Podcasts. So I'd appreciate that. And I, as I did mention, we are on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash flop culture. Let me shout out a few new patrons here. Very excited to have you all with us in the realms. And also just to say, Flop Culture is as much my podcast as it is yours, Patreon or otherwise. If you have a suggestion, I'm always open to hearing them. It's hello, flopculture at gmail.com. Let's shout out some new. Who's new? Who do we have in here? Hello to Hannah, who signed up on the Flop Search here. Thank you for joining us. Hope you're well. Aoife also. Hope you're enjoying it. Leonora, I really hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Very happy to have you. And Anne-Marie, great to have you here on Flop Culture. Hope you're enjoying it. If you have any suggestions, episodes let me know that is it we are back next week look out for clues on next week's topic on our social media platforms i've been fanula i hope you're well editing has been done by the lovely adam shannon until next time stay safe bye bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 